So I was a, a little delinquent um, last week in that um, I was committed to reading the whole chap, the whole book, because I still feel that even with a book that's as um, intense as Ephesians, there is a real value in getting an overview. So that meant I left one of one page of my notes out, and last week's. Um, um, brief was why write this letter and we um, spent some time in context in thinking about Ephesus and um, Paul's involvement with it and how the church was, the geography um, the dynamics of the people in the church but I, I neglected to tell you the context of the letter so the letter was written around the same time as Philippians and if you remember, uh, Philippians was written while Paul was in um, house under house arrest in Rome, um, and you know you can imagine him reflecting back on his experience with these different churches, and as a consequence, writing to them. So the churches generally were around thirty years old at that point. Um, and I'm talking about the existence of churches of God, so we're now up to the second or third generation um, of people in the church. But relatively speaking, Ephesus was a fledgling church, so maximum 10 years old at that point. And we were saying that in contrast to um, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which is um, rich on devotional stuff and fairly light on doctrine, um, when we get to Ephesians, it's very much um, a intense um, range of Christian doctrine teaching and really excellent stuff um, and great for us to get our teeth into. Um, interestingly, Paul begins the letter by saying, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, I believe it was probably something like six years since he last met with the people um, in Ephesus. And it seems, you can imagine him in Rome, seven years of adventure since he last spent time with them. And he's reflecting on this um, very important group of people to him. He'd spent three years um, with them continually I neglected to mention last time that in um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul references how that he fought wild animals in Ephesus. So we were looking at the um, amphitheatres that still exist, uh, or the ruins of them today, and Paul would be reflecting back at such um, amazing experiences, extreme persecution, um, being rejected um, more than he had in any other place by the Jews in the synagogue. So there were certainly Jewish people in the assembly in Ephesus, there were converts, but he'd had a real hard time from his usual catchment of, um, of followers in that he'd gone to preach in the synagogue and eventually gave up. And then he moved to the lecture hall of Tyrannus um, and now was um, discussing with the academics from the Greek part of the society, which also formed part of the Church of God. So he's reflecting back on a very rich and 
broad range of experience with his friends in, in Ephesus. And what comes to his mind is they are saints. Saints are holy people. And that was what characterised them in Paul's mind. Um, and they're faithful in Christ. That's the committed to um, being what they were called to be. I counted up um, ten different doctrines, I would say, in the, um, in the book. There's probably more. God's sovereign choice and our predestination. Redemption, which is what we're going to be thinking about today. In fact, we'll think about both of those today. Salvation by grace through faith. The presence and work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. The concept of churches of God together forming the house of God on earth today. The doctrine of the church, the body of Christ and the unity of all believers. Spiritual gifts. Marriage, its sacredness as a human parable of the holy relationship between Christ and his church. Relationships in family, work and the church and spiritual battles in the armour of God. It's a very rich range um, of uh, teaching that we find in Paul's letter to Ephesus. Um, I wanted to read to you um, the context of the last encounter Paul would have had with the people in Ephesus, the last face-to-face -face encounter, and we get it from Acts 20. So I'm wondering, can we spend a little bit of time in Acts 20? And then what I'd like to do is go to the overview of the book which David has given us, and then we'll get into the specifics of our topic for today. So I think it's helpful for us to read Acts 20. It has some very beautiful references to um, redemption, which I'd like us to embrace as well. Um, so where we're picking up in Acts 20 is Paul had spent three years in Ephesus here. Um, he has a mission to go back to Jerusalem and this is a, a um, compelling burden from the Holy Spirit that he needs to go back to Jerusalem. But he goes east to, um, sorry, he goes west to go east. So he, he goes first to Macedonia and then he's en route back to Jerusalem. So he's visiting the churches, the likes of Philippi, um, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth is in there too. And having done that, he goes across to Troas. And Troas is in uh, the earlier part of Acts 20, and that's where the guy who was um, sitting on the window ledge fell asleep during Paul's ministry. It's a cracking story. And he fell out the window and died. And Paul was able to bring him back to life. That's immediately prior to this. Um, and so we're picking up the story just as Paul has finished that um, short-term visit to the people in the um, saints in Troas. So verse 13 of Acts 20. Uh, this is Luke talking, of course. He says, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. <laughs> He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Metallini. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, we arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, 
He said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of many Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task to the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the gospel will see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bore with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spur the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for the three years, I, for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. Now I commit you to the God of the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept, and they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. It struck me that uh, Paul was desperate to have this off-site meeting with the overseers from the Church of God in Ephesus, and both sides made an effort to make it happen as he was on his way to Jerusalem. And I'm just wondering about him fighting in Ephesus with wild animals. You know, was this a real common sense, wise thing to do? If I go to Ephesus, you know, I might not even get out. So I'm going to meet them, but I really need to make the effort to meet them because I've got a very important message to deliver, and this is my last opportunity. This is a occurring overseer, um, and you just have this compelling image don't you he's given them these very direct warnings that even from amongst their own oversight uh, what he describes as wolves will um, will emerge and they'll um, preach a, a false gospel and they'll um, lead the flock away this is a a real fear that the Lord that um, Paul had imagine if you were one of those overseers and you were receiving this message from the apostle who'd been so passionate about sticking with the truth. Um, and then you have this very emotional time where they pray together. It's a real um, 
compelling lesson for overseers to, to pray together. That was Paul's last thing that he did with the overseers in the Church of God in Ephesus. It's a very key part. Of course, it's not just for overseers. When we pray together as an assembly, it's very special. When we pray together, perhaps as small groups, it's special because we get to know what the Lord has put on each other's hearts as we listen to what's prayed for. And that certainly would have been Paul and the overseers from Ephesus' experience. Um, so we're now putting the clock forward about seven years. So he's been back to um, Jerusalem. He's made another trip which doesn't involve Ephesus and he's now in Rome and he's under house arrest and he's writing this letter to the saints in Ephesus. He will have heard a lot about them but you won't have seen them since he left. Um, and he describes them as the faithful ones. So their reputation was they are so far um, holding um, to the teaching. This is how um, David has um, brought together the agenda for these dis um, Ephesians discussions. So we have three months worth and rather than go through this in detail, obviously we'll go, go through it week by week. But it, it occurred to me there's, there's a dimension here which is really important. And as you travel down the list, in other words, get deeper into the book, you get a real sense that we're moving from doctrine to practice. And these are two really important aspects of a church of God, really sound doctrine, but also put into practice. And you get a sense of that dimension. And it, it's not completely clean, clean in, that, in that way. There's, there's practical things laced throughout the whole book, and there are doctrinal things laced throughout the whole book. But we'll see that uh, the first part is very much focused on doctrine and the second part is very much focused on practice. There's another dimension as well um, and you get this horizontally in every chapter. You get a real sense of doctrine and teaching and practice associated with individuals. So this is about our personal salvation um, but you also get a very rich sense of community. So we are not um, designed to be standalone Christians. That's completely foreign from God's word. We're designed to be Christians called collectively to be serving collectively together in a church of God. So you also get this other dimension which is from the individual, the personal to the collective, very important for us to think about. And finally, and I'm, I'm sorry that this is a rather clumsy way of expressing it, but there's a third dimension as well, and it's um, to do with time you get a, a real sense of eternity to eternity, uh, particularly in the doctrine that Paul is teaching. Um, so there's a, a time dimension too, and there are things that we can enjoy um, that are about eternity. And eternity is outside of time. So things that happen before the creation of the world that involve us, and things that uh, we have also to look forward to when time has uh, served its purpose. So... Um, might sound a bit complex, but you'll see these things and enjoy them as we dig into uh, Ephesians. We have um, doctrine and practice, we have personal and collective, and we have time and eternity. And they're all, in a wonderful way, linked to each other. So let's go to um, 
our topic for today, which is the second one on the list, Redemption, All for God's Glory. And I'd like us to read, we've read Acts 20, let's read um, just the first 14 verses of chapter 1. So the context, remember, we've got Paul having not visited them for seven years, a real concern about um, false doctrine creeping in, wolves emerging from within the church and uh, leading the flock astray. Um, he has a real sense of the um, faithfulness so far in God's word. Um, and here's what he writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, we're going Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise for the, sorry, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted to sonship, to be adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first put, who first who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marking him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. My style or process in um, taking on these ministries is to try and share with you up front some key messages and kind of do that and hopefully then um, reiterate them and illustrate them a bit through uh, what's written in the passage that we're considering. Um, and the objective here is that we get a strong embedded feeling for what the key points are of the ministry. So under our title today, Redemption, All for God's Glory, these are the four things I'd like us to um, leave with a conviction about. I have a sense of being let in on a secret. It's referred to as the mystery of God's will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And it's a sense of there is a bigger picture. It's a, a plan hatched outside of time in which I personally <coughs> feature, and so do you, and we feature in it together. It's a very special um, thing for us to get an insight in. Number two is my redemption is central to the plan. It's a demonstration of God's love, my worth in his estimation, and the seriousness of sin. That's number two. Number three, the ultimate goal, to maximise God's pleasure 
and our pleasure by bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And I sense there's two aspects of that. Ultimately, in eternity, there is a sense in which that will not have its fulfilment until eternity. However, to a measure, in our time, that's today, and our circumstances, that's the Church of God in Manchester, there's a very real sense where we can, in a way, increase, maybe maximise God's pleasure and our pleasure and the fourth point is it's to the praise of his glory. This is just um, a statement that will crop up time and time again as we go through it. So that's where I would like to take us. And if we just look at these um, one by one. So the sense of being let in on a secret. For me, it's the importance of reading the book in one, the letter in one sitting. And Ephesians is a difficult one because... Every verse, it seems like it's stuffed with rich, rich meaning and doctrine. And when you, you're trying to read the letter as we did last week, um, you, your kind of mind can't keep up with it. But I think the way I would like us to see it is you've, the background is you've got a Church of God which has been established for about 10 years. Paul spent three brilliant years with them and it was a whole range of, of rich blessing of rejection by Jewish people that Paul was not used to receiving that kind of treatment and then real engagement in academic debates but winning those academic debates so that there were um, Greeks if you like Gentiles also in the church um, and as we look at that and see the the flavor that there is in the church and the fact it's been going now for 10 years um, and the fact that Ephesus was a, a church of God amongst churches of God, that's maybe a perspective that they wouldn't have had. You know, how much communication was there? It's easy for us to count up all the churches of God that there are around the world and feel part of that community. I just wonder whether the people in the church of God of Ephesus would have had any sense of that broader community. Maybe they would have some of it because the likes of Paul and his companions were travelling around. But I, I think Paul, in his letter, is giving them a sense that you're uh, a group that's very precious, but you're part of a much bigger group as well. Um, so there's a sense that he's letting them in on a secret. And the way I would describe it is there is a bigger picture. And in verse 9, he says, It's the mystery of God's will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. The verses that I would draw us to is verse 11. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And then verse 4. And you'll see that I've kind of, uh, I'm bouncing around backwards and forwards through the sequence of verses that there are here because it's just how they appeal to me to group together. Verse 4. For he chose us in him, that's in Christ before the creation of the world. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. We have the doctrine of God's sovereign choice of us as individuals and the fact that in his sovereignty 
um, he has predestined us to fulfill a certain um, life and, and work. We can often get tangled up with this because we start thinking about, well, if I'm a person that God chose before the world was created, before time began, then what choice do I have? And that's the mystery of it. You know, God created us in his own image and part of that image is that we have the opportunity to choose and we have free will. That's something that distinguishes us from the rest of God's creation. For me, the only answer is to step back out of our circumstances and get rid of those complex logical questions and say, there is a bigger picture and God knew what choices I would make. And for me, the special thing in this wonderful truth about predestination and God's sovereign choice is I featured I, Steve Seddon featured in God's bigger picture that he put together before time began um, I say that not so that I have an ego because I'm not special you know, on contrary but it does make me, it's, it's humbling but it makes me intrigued as to understand more of this plan. That's what's in this first point for me. It's the embracing the reality of God's sovereign choice of me. And it's not just I'm chosen and therefore I'm kind of made separate in some way. I'm chosen and predestined to engage. My life has a purpose to it um, that is part of God's plan. And I would just encourage us all to embrace the specialness of that, that we as individuals are God's choice, that's one part of it. But then as we'll see, um, as I'm part of his plan, so are you part of his plan, and together we affect his plan, we make it happen, we are part of the execution of his plan. I think this is something that Paul was um, encouraging this um, very diverse group of people in Ephesus to get a sense of that you know you, you've been brought together from all these different nationalities we were thinking about Apollos being from from North Africa and we were talking about uh, Priscilla and Aquila one of them I can't remember which coming from the north of Turkey possibly Persia what is now Iran um, you've got all of these diverse people and Paul is saying that you are God's sovereign choice as individuals and he's brought you together in this amazing way and you're now serving together in the church of God in Ephesus. So let's embrace this mystery, this secret, this bigger picture that God is revealing through Paul to the saints in the church of God in Ephesus. Second point is my redemption is central to the plan. Uh, it's a demonstration of God's love, of my worth in his estimation, and the seriousness of sin. Verse 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. There's that old... Um, conundrum you know why why would God allow his creation to go wrong um, 
it's a philosophical question that can be such a barrier to people accepting a loving God by faith. And for me, the, the only answer is that there is a bigger picture. And God, um, as part of that, wanted to demonstrate the depth of his love for us, the depth of his holiness, the importance of dealing with sin. And part of this bigger picture was that he would um, redeem people who had moved away from him. He would demonstrate his love by um, making it possible for their sins to be forgiven and a fallen people made holy and therefore serving God as individuals and together. It's, um, it's spectacular. That's the, the story of my redemption. Um, I love this little list of things that, that go on when you, you acquire something. Um, just referencing verse 13, we'll come back to this, this as well. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. There is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. We had in Acts 20, um, Paul describing the church of God in Ephesus to the overseers from the church of God in Ephesus that, that their church was purchased with Christ's blood. We don't often think of redemption in the context of a church of God, but by virtue of the fact it's comprised of individuals who've been redeemed, so he also uh, redeemed the church. And I, I've used this illustration before, it's quite precious to me, so forgive me if, it's, uh, if you've heard it too many times. But just before we went to America, um, I was a little flush job-wise because we were moving into an expat environment where basically the company pays for everything. So I had it on my heart to say, Ange, you know, you're, you're kind of giving up um, being close to family and all that stuff and I'm moving you to the other end of the world. I'd like to buy you a diamond. And um, you can imagine Ange kind of eyes lit up, really? Okay, I'll go for that. I know nothing about diamonds. Um, and all of a sudden she became an expert, you know, and I, I thought, well, we'll go shopping. We lived on the South Coast. We'll go shopping in Worthing and we'll buy a diamond. How wrong was I? <laughs> because in her mind she had exactly what she wanted. Um, it's shape, it's colour, you know, it's carrots or whatever it might be. And I got so fed up of traipsing around these jewellers thinking, I just don't get this, you know, that looks fine to me. Um, and there was a, a selection process going on. And I, in the end, I gave up and said, look, when you find the one you want, how romantic is this? When you find the one you want, come back and I'll pay the bill. <laughs> so um, I did get invited back. And then it was, um, okay, Steve, now it's the negotiation. You know, it's how much? Um, and you start negotiating and then you agree a price and then you hand over the cash and then there is the acquisition you know the the deed the ownership transfers um, we get from Ephesians 1 this process of the choice being made you know it, it's a mystery isn't it how God would knowing all that, that there is to possibly know about everyone on the earth, he would choose me. And then there would be the evaluation, you know, what's he worth? 
Uh, and of course, it was the ultimate price, only one price, which was the provision of his son. And then there is the payment. And that's the word becoming flesh and the Lord Jesus becoming the sacrifice for my sin. And then there is the deed. There's the handing over um, of the legal rights to the individual. And I, I just like that last expression in verse 13, which is talking about um, we've got a ho the Holy Spirit given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance uh, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You have all of these things um, included in this wonderful truth about God's redemption of us. There's a future um, orientation to this, isn't there? You get the sense from verse 13 that the, the until, the redemption uh, of those who are God's possession. There is a sense in which the collectively you know, the, the redemption isn't finished because there are still people being added to the church, which is the body of Christ. Uh, there's also a sense when God gets the full ownership of me. Um, now, you know, there's living as a, a sinner in a world of sin. There's all kinds of calls on my life. He's paid the price. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. But is he getting all of me? Unlikely at this point. Allow, allow the Holy Spirit to lead that truth where he will take it. Our third point. Um, the ultimate goal to maximise God's pleasure and our pleasure by bringing all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. I was making the point that there is a sense when this will ultimately find its fulfilment in eternity. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Clearly, all things in heaven and on earth are not united under Christ as we speak today. Um, and that is the ultimate um, accomplishment of God's bigger picture of his plan. Um, so my contention, disagree if you wish, maybe there's a question uh, that will emerge from this. There's, um, this is the dimension that is eternity to eternity and time in between. It's um, when time has found its fulfilment that this will find its ultimate fulfilment. But there is um, a sense, I said the, to a measure in our time, that's today, and in our circumstances, that's the Church of God in Manchester, there's a, an extent to which uh, the fulfilment of God's pleasure and my pleasure and your pleasure can be realised. Lots of illustrations of this in Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. This is a present tense. You know, we know, and it's not about blessing on earth either. It's a, it's a blessing in the heavenly realms. And it's where we've been this morning. So earlier on in the verse, I don't think I've pulled this verse out, but it talks about us being made holy and without blemish. Well, there is a sense in which that's the way God looks at me today. 
and the way he looks at you today by virtue of Christ's redeeming power and the forgiveness of sins that we have because of his blood. Um, and we can celebrate that today. It's, it's the truth of us being God's people presented holy and blameless without accusation. I think that's in Colossians 1. Another verse, 12 and 13 again. Praise be to the God and Father of... Um, sorry, that we might... Um, be for the praise of his glory you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation having believed this is a verse for me which uh, helps a lot with eternal security you know this concept of falling in and out of Christ I just don't get you know and it's having heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and having believed you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, a guarantee of inheritance for those who are uh, redeemed and um, God's possession. So having believed, we have all of that stuff. So again, this is a here and now experience, and it's God being delighted with what his son has accomplished, and he's delighted already. And there is a sense in which, despite where we are and all of the frustrations and things that uh, we struggle with, there is a sense where we can delight in the blessings that we know in the here and now because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So they are the four um, things that are intended to bring before us. The last one, it's to the praise of his glory. If we can get our head around what delights God, I think it's a key part of understanding all these precious truths. You know, we could fall into the trap of thinking, has God got some kind of massive ego that says he wants this praise all the time? It's about our designer wanting to maximise the um, purpose of his creation. He wants us to live up to his full expectations um, and it's it's to his pleasure because that's what we were designed for and it's to my pleasure because there's no there's no better way of living life than knowing that you're living up to your creator's expectations fulfilling your potential um, so to the praise of his glory is just seeing about God's plan being fulfilled in its entirety there is no better thing for him or for me and you to see that coming to fruition. It's a, a lovely expression. All of these things are to the praise of his glory. One comment we had was to the praise of his glorious grace. It's a variation on the same theme. So that's us today. Um, thinking about the redemption, all for God's glory. Our redemption, all for God's glory. It's the... Um, accompanied by a whole bunch of other rich truths about God's sovereign choice, his predestination of us, and uh, what we have become in him. Shall we pray?